morning, everyone. My name is Hamilton George, and I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church of Woodlawn. I pastor alongside Brian uh, Collison. Brian just took the kids to their classes. And so uh, at this time, I would like to extend a warm welcome to all of the fathers in the house. Uh, welcome and a happy Father's Day. And uh, as we get started this morning, um, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And I want us to pray for our children as they go. Uh, and I also, when I do that, want to pray for uh, the fathers in the house. So if you would, please uh, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful to be in uh, your, uh, with your body here today, Lord, with your church. We are grateful for uh, the freedoms that we have to gather uh, peaceably, God, to study you, to worship you, and to love upon one another. So we thank you, Lord, for the awesome responsibility of caring for and raising children. We uh, thank you for that, but Lord, we are desperately in need, as we just sang of. Uh, we are in need of you to help us do that, and so I pray that you'd be with the uh, teachers this morning as they um, share the lesson, Lord, but not only share just a lesson, Lord, but they share the, the very gospel truth with our children. May they, uh, alongside with the Holy Spirit, stir a passion and hunger for you in their hearts, Lord, as they gather this morning. Lord, I pray for the fathers that have gathered here today, Lord, as we celebrate them and the, we celebrate the work that you have given us to do as fathers. Lord, I just pray once again uh, for us and for the desperate need that we have for you, Lord, that we might lead in a way, Lord, that honors you and that reflects your fatherliness and your goodness to us as well. Be with those today, Lord, who cannot be with their fathers, who might miss them because of distance or be missing them because of passing. Lord, be with them and comfort them. And uh, may we all come to know, Lord, that you are our heavenly father. And Lord, that you uh, provide uh, all that we need when it comes to that example. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been uh, in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. And so if you would, uh, go ahead and get a Bible out. You will be needing one this morning to stay uh, with us. Uh, in the pews in front of you, there are Bibles uh, that we have supplied those Bibles are the uh, Holman Christian Standard Version, the HCSB uh, Bible, and they are there for you to use if you didn't bring one or you don't have some kind of contraption with you where you can bring up a Bible. So you're welcome to use that this morning. You're also welcome to have that. Uh, we feel it's paramount uh, that you have a, a good modern English translation in your home that you can use, that you can read for yourself and then also your family can read as well. And so if you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to take that one with you as our gift to you this morning. We'll be, as I said, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, um, as we have said in weeks prior, uh, those three are letters, or what are known as epistles, and uh, they are written by the Apostle Paul to church planters in the first century. And so uh, Paul was an apostle of Jesus, had an amazing conversion, uh, found in the book of Acts where he was once a, once a persecutor and a hater of all things Christianity and all things Jesus, was miraculously converted um, and uh, was turned not only as a convert but also then as a leader, a primary leader in the first century movement of Christianity. And so he wrote many of the letters um, to the churches throughout the Mediterranean area, throughout the, the empire of Rome. And so those have been uh, carefully preserved uh, by God's grace through the millennia. 
and have been passed down to us, and that's what we have here uh, this morning. And so First, Second Timothy, and Titus, as I said, our letters there are located towards the back, even of the New Testament, really. Uh, just a couple of letters, a couple of pages in your Bible. And so Timothy was a church planter, as we discussed, a church planter in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a bustling uh, port metropolis. It was a, p- a political center of power. It was a military center. It was a commercial center. It was much like uh, we might find ourselves in um, Metro D.C. as we are here in Northern Virginia, a same type of environment, cosmopolitan, people from all over the world gathering. And so this small fledgling Christian church is there in Ephesus, and Paul actually wrote a letter directly to them, not only a letter directly to them, but also two letters uh, to the church planter that was gathered there. And so uh, there was a church that uh, wanted to follow Christ, but had many influences upon it and uh, had many problems to work out, as we find. And then Titus, uh, Titus was a church planter on the island of Crete, uh, was no Ephesus, that's for sure, but he dealt with much uh, paganism that was there and worship and, uh, and, and Greek mythology and different things that he dealt with there, and we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But um, just as a little bit of review, uh, normally when we, when we preach, normally when we, when we teach through a book, we go uh, book by book and chapter by chapter, but we've, doing it, we've been doing things slightly differently um, given the nature of these three letters. Um, they're kind of different in their composition. Um, they cover some of the similar topics. And so we have been covering, we've been taking a somewhat topical approach to teaching them, to teaching through them. Um, and uh, what we do is we sort of just take them as a whole and we, we're trying to look for the themes that are in them. And so we still want to uh, be expositional towards the, the text. We still want to pull out its plain meaning to us, uh, but we're kind of doing that thematically um, this time around. And so... As a primary purpose verse, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, if you would turn with me as I open us this morning. Paul gives us the purpose in which he writes, the primary purpose in which he writes. He plainly says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so, yes, Paul is writing uh, instructional letters to church planters uh, in these remote or these, uh, in these areas, uh, but his primary goal is actually that the people there, the churches there, might know how they ought to act in God's household. And we had talked about in weeks prior, this is because we, as, as converted, as as previous sinners, we do not know automatically how we ought to act in God's household. We don't come in and get a download matrix style of how God wants things. Uh, it's a process of learning. It's a process of growing. And so Paul wrote his letters. God inspired these words uh, through the apostle Paul to his church so that people, so that we believers, those inside the church might know how we ought to act in God's household, and then by doing that, by both knowing and acting as we ought to, we become and we are pillars and foundations of God's truth. And so the church then can stand in a tumultuous environment and be a foundational element of culture and society wherever we go. But that can only happen by upholding the truth, by knowing how we ought to act. And so we've begun to unpack what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean 
by how we ought to act? Is it just a list of rules that we ought to follow, or is it more than that? And as we've looked over the last couple of weeks, we started out by looking at the theological foundation of this. Many times people come to the Bible, or they think they know the Bible, and they think that the Bible is just a list of rules and regulations. It's just, it's just a, it's a drag, man. It's just a bummer. God's nothing but a wet blanket telling me what I ought to do. But then we find out there's actually a theological foundation and a theological transformation that occurs. And so we've, in weeks past, we've studied the greatness of God as found in 1 Timothy 1 and 17. And so we looked at the boundlessness, the uniqueness, and the changelessness of the God that we serve and His ultimate holiness. We've looked at the goodness of God that when He appeared to us, even though He is holy and perfect and unique, When he appeared to us in Christ Jesus, he appeared to us not in judgment or condemnation, but in kindness, as as Paul says in Titus 3, uh, 4 through 7. And we saw that this kindness or this salvation comes to everybody. It's universal in that anyone can come to the table, but it is exclusive to those who will bend the knee in submission to Christ. It is personal. It is individual to everyone. It is objective. This salvation is something that happens to us. It's not something that we cause to happen. It's fully effective. It's complete. needs no addition to. And it's also futuristic, as we saw in Titus 3. There is a hope coming. There is a restoration coming in the future that we can be hopeful for. And so when Christ appeared, as I said, appeared not in judgment and condemnation during disappearance, but rather in love and kindness and generosity, providing salvation for all who would come. And then finally, the theological foundation of these letters is we have the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and we have the revelation of God, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we see that this word, these texts that we hold in in our hands, are not mere ancient uh, fables or myths, but we believe inspired by the very Holy Spirit of God and is profitable for those who will receive it, profitable to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And so we have this solid foundation, the solid theological foundation that Paul talks about in these texts. It's not the primary purpose of these texts, as, it, as you might see in Romans or Ephesians or even in Galatians, where Paul's primary purpose of writing might be more theological. Paul's primary purpose, as we said here, is how we ought to act. And so last week, Brian began to unpack what it means of how we ought to act. And we began to look at uh, our corporate conduct how we are to act when we are gathered together. And so Paul in 1 Timothy says that Christians in general ought to, uh, ought to lift up petitions and prayers and, in, in, and intercessions and thanksgiving and that those should be done for everyone. So a general posture of prayer ought to be the conduct of us when we come together. Amen? A general posture of prayer, both praying out loud and praying within ourselves, of reaching out, seeking, and devoting ourselves to the one true God. And then we looked at the roles of men and women inside of a corporate fellowship. We saw how men are called upon to pray and to lift their holy hands without anger or argument, that they are to be qualified and to be pure when they are lifting up these prayer. Women, likewise, are also called um, into... A certain um, 
activity. They are to dress modestly. They are to affirm uh, the wor- their worship to God through their good works. They are like the men to be without anger or argument or dispute. They're to learn in, in quiet submission. And they're not to, have, to not to teach or to have authority over the men in the church. And Paul roots and grounds this not in simple competency and certainly not in worth or value, but the role of men and women inside the church is based in the very order of creation. As God said, he first created Adam and then Eve. And he has given us complementary gifts and complementary dispositions in order to operate in our fullness and our maximum capacity, not for our good or our glory, but for his glory, for what he wants the church to accomplish. So we explored that a little bit, and I know that that can be a touchy subject in our modern day and age, and it's something we have to work through and work on, but if we believe this book is inspired and it is authoritative, then it is worth our energy and our effort to know what does God mean and what is his perfect order for us, and what does that mean for us here at Pillar Woodlawn. And then lastly, last week we looked at the leaders in the church, those who do lead, those who do lead, their, their aspiration to lead, their character qualifications, and then finally their competency, competency or their ability to teach the truth. And so, uh, you know, as we talk about leadership and we talk about who can be in leadership and who can't, uh, we certainly need to understand that leaders, uh, those who do lead, those who God has called to lead, have a high bar, they have high qualifications. We don't just follow anybody, not just anybody can be a leader, uh, but but these men who uh, aspire, who have qualifying characteristics, and who are competent in what God has called them to do. And so that brings us to today. And today we move from more of a corporate governance structure, or more of a corporate a sense that when we come together, this is how we ought to act, uh, more to a personal or relational side of how we ought to act. And as I was reviewing things this week, I, you know, when we sat down and we split uh, kind of the content up, we put three things last week, and then we kind of put everything else this week. I see now what a mistake that was. Uh, we should have put more last week and broke it up differently, but that's not how we did it. But today we're going to look at that personal or relational conduct aspect that Paul uh, gets into in his letters as he instructs Timothy and Titus into what instruction they are to give individuals. And as I read um, and studied the instructions of Paul, the instructions of God through Paul, I began to think about my childhood a little bit, and um, I began to think about chore lists. And uh, maybe that takes you back to, uh, to your childhood. H- how many had a list of chores to do in the household? I see a lot of hands go up. Now, I was kind of in a weird environment. Um, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s. And I don't know if that was against the law in the 80s or what, but I, had, I didn't have a chore list growing up. I didn't have a chore list, I know. Uh, my parents were a little too easy on me. And so I was never forced to do much. I was never forced to do much. But I did uh, occasionally have to clean up my room uh, and occasionally have to make my bed. Not all the time, but occasionally. Uh, but I know as a child, when you're given a task, and I can see this with my kids now, you know, we've, we've kind of changed a little bit on our kids where uh, we're a little more... Uh, structured, uh, where they have lists of chores. But as I thought about chores and kids and chore making and list making, I I began to, again, think about, I mentioned this earlier, but how most people approach the Bible, how most people think what this is doing is it's an imposition of a 
of a list of things, of do's and don'ts. And, and they're not attracted to more laws or more rules, especially in our current culture and environment. They're attracted more to an environment that says, you make your own truth, you make your own rules, do what's good for you. That's kind of the environment, of course, that we find ourselves in. And we have to really stop and ask ourselves first, personally, how much do I believe that, how much do I buy into that? And then secondly, is that really honoring to God? Are my rules honoring to God? Do, do man's rules honor God? And, and I think the easy answer is, the obvious answer is no. And we can see that here uh, as Paul provides a list for us in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. So before we talk about how we, are, uh, how we ought to act, I want to first focus us in on this little, little section where Paul tells us how certainly we are not to act. So let's first talk about how we are not to act. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 starting in verse 8. Paul says this, But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. And so Paul is about to use the law legitimately. And the use of the law, the proper use of the law, is to point out sin and error. It's to tell us right from wrong. It's to tell us the way God wants it done and the way he doesn't. So verse 9. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. And so Paul's about to tell us what, uh, what it, it's not for the righteous, but it's, you might say, for the unrighteous. And so he's going to give us a list here of unrighteous things, unrighteous things that we ought not to do. So picking it back up in verse 9, but for the lawless and rebellious. So there's two things, for the ungodly and the sinful. This is what where the, the law is useful in pointing out lawlessness, rebellion, ungodliness, and sinfulness. Also, the law is useful for pointing out the unholy and the irreverent. The law is useful to point out that you ought not to kill your father or your mother or anyone else. Verse 10, the law is useful for pointing out the sexually immoral and the and homosexual behavior. It's useful for pointing out the kidnappers, the liars, the perjurers. And here's where Paul includes everybody else. If you haven't found yourself in that list yet, here's where you fall in. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Now Paul here is giving a list, and oftentimes we might look at lists in different ways. Sometimes we look for lists to grab onto something so that we can use it onto somebody else so that we can point out their sin and their fault and their shortcomings. That, I would suggest, is an improper use of the law. The law is not to be used to conquer other people, to get one up on others. It doesn't save in this capacity. It only reveals who we all are. And so its use on others must be handled very carefully. And very carefully, what I mean by that is we must first use it upon ourselves. We must first look at this list and say, where do I fit? Where do I struggle? Where is my fight in this? What does the law point out in my heart? Is it lawlessness, rebellion, ungodliness, irreverence, murder, sexual immorality, whether heterosexual or homosexual? 
kidnappers, liars, perjurers, or something else. Paul is just taking a couple verses here to say we are, we're all in here. We could go into many other of Paul's writings and find out that we are not all born good and that our way is distorted and that we need a new way. We need to substitute a new vision for the future because we see all these things in society working. We see all these things in individuals working and we see these things working in our own hearts. Now before I move on, let me just state Again, the law is not useful. It is useful for pointing these things out. It is not useful for salvation. Now, let me repeat that. The law is not useful for salvation. Here's what I mean by that. Your observance, no matter how great, of the law does not negate your guilt before God. No amount of good behavior on your part, negates your guilt before God. That's not how it works. You can't be good enough to override your guilty sentence before a holy God. And so it's not observance of the law that saves. And so the law in and of itself has no power to bring salvation. Only God's grace and mercy in Christ is what saves Look with me in verse 12, Paul writes here, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. As I said, Paul was once a a persecutor of the church. Now he is a teacher of the church, one who is formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed among the faith along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy. Paul goes on there to talk about some more things, but I just want us to focus there on the idea that even Paul himself, somebody who we might consider a champion of the Christian faith, knew that no activity on his part would bring about his salvation. No observance of the law would bring about salvation. That's very important for us to recognize in here today. It's to recognize, number one, that we need to count ourselves as chief among sinners, totally, utterly helpless when it comes to our own salvation. So before we talk about how we ought to act, let us first recognize how we not how we first recognize how we ought not to act and then recognize where our true salvation lies and comes because it's from this theological foundation as it later it's from this salvation that we can then talk about what does it look like what does saved look like what does mercy what does someone who's received mercy what does it look like when they behave when they act in the world when they uh, interact with others when they're in relationship with others what does that look like now ultimately we can think about the big umbrella or the big heading of jesus where jesus says uh, love your neighbor as yourself that's the big heading that we can talk about there's actually two headings there there's primary love god love your neighbor as yourself Uh, jesus gives us as the, the all the law and all the prophets hang on those two principles and so Paul here in First and Second Timothy and Titus gives us a slice, a narrow slice of what it means 
to do that? What does it mean to love others out of a place of salvation, not out of a place of obligation, not out of a place of thinking that if I behave correctly, God will let me in? That's a modern total lie from the devil himself. But how do I act now that I have submitted my life to the Lordship of Jesus? How ought my life now look? And so I want to uh, just quickly go over, try to quickly go over uh, some of these. We're not going to go into great detail necessarily this morning. I want to give you an overview. But I do want you, as we go along, to maybe uh, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart that there might be one of these um, uh, elements that God is transforming you this morning that you might this week engage in proper behavior and activity. And so there's, there's ten of these. I don't want to scare anybody. We're going to go through them hopefully pretty succinctly. But there's 10 of these in 2 Timothy and Titus. They're primarily in 1 Timothy and Titus. 2 Timothy, Paul doesn't really give much instructions uh, to the church. It's primarily uh, to to Timothy himself. And so we'll be primarily in 1 Timothy and Titus. So the first one of these that we come to where Paul directly gives some of these relational instructions is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and then in order to save time, I'm not going to read through the whole passage. Um, if I didn't have 10 to get through, we would, uh, but you can come back later and, I, and read it and double check me. But um, just to give you sort of the highlight, uh, some highlights of this, uh, Paul here um, is admonishing Timothy that in the, in the church in Ephesus, there ought to be the support of widows. And so verse 3 of chapter 5, supporting or support widows who are genuinely widows. And so Paul here says uh, that the treatment, what, what ought to be the treatment of qualified widows. So what qualifies them for care, and then what are we to do for them? And so we see here that uh, they must not have children or grandchildren that can take care of them. And so uh, children and grandchildren, you are not off the hook for caring for your parents, especially uh, your mother, um, if, she, if she's left as a widow. We have a biblical obligation as a, as a family, as a unit, to take care of uh, those that, are, that, have t- that first took care of us, of course. Uh, widows who receive care are not to be self-indulgent. They're to be at least 60 years old. Uh, they are to be the wife of one husband. They're going to have no other uh, support available. And they're, they're to be known for good works. They're to, known to be uh, not necessarily recent converts, but they're known throughout the community as faithful followers of Christ. And so again, you should read through that and you should uh, pray on that more. You should think about that more. We're not going to take more time. There's just some of the highlights in that this morning. Secondly, number two is also in chapter five. And this is uh, honor to elders or leaders of the church. So verse 17, the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium or payment, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so we see right off the bat uh, here in this section, Paul says that those that preach and teach uh, are worthy uh, of, of their time and they're worthy to receive an honorarium or a payment for their time. That's why uh, in many instances we pay um, for preachers or ministers to minister in the church. This is exactly where it comes from that God has asked the body of believers to support so that the teaching and preaching of the gospel is guaranteed to occur and not to be overlooked 
or overshadowed. And so those who are good leaders, those who are qualified leaders, those who teach the truth are worthy of an honorarium. Also, the uh, verse 19, do not accept accusation against an elder unless, unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. And so their life, their character is worthy of respect and honor. Uh, in addition here, Paul talks about, uh, uh, but not only that, not only is there to be that accusation, but if that accusation is to be true, there's actually to be public rebuke of sin, verse 20, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid, so that no one is beyond the law, no one is beyond God's uh, a judgment or punishment. Even the leaders, they cannot get away uh, with sin, and so we publicly should rebuke them. We should not show prejudice or favoritism uh, towards, our, towards leaders, towards individuals. And we should not appoint them too quickly, but we should know them. And Paul says here it's because hidden sin takes time to surface. And so there should be a process, there should be time, there should be a knowing that occurs before leaders and elders are appointed. Number three is following right here in chapter 6, honor to masters. And so um, slaves are to regard their masters as being worthy of respect. And uh, Paul here isn't addressing the full topic of uh, slavery in the first century. Um, You may or may not know slavery wasn't exactly like you might think of um, as American or colonial slavery. It It was pretty different. I won't go into too much of the detail this morning, but this is not Paul's exhaustive work on this. He may have been addressing a specific problem that they were having in Ephesus where those who worked for individuals, those who were indebted to or enslaved to individuals, were slacking on their responsibilities because they were now converted to Christianity. And Paul said that is incorrect use of your Christianity. Your freedom in Christ does not allow you to obscure your witness of the gospel and to shirk your responsibilities. And so so to look to other texts, we could look to other texts to see Paul's, actually his radical opinion, radical first century opinion on the change of the relationship between servant and master. If you're curious about this, Ephesians 6 and 9 talks about mutual respect and fair treatment between the two. And in the entire book of Philemon, Paul actually gives a, two verses regarding the abolishment of slavery. He asks Philemon to um, abolish his slave relationship. And so Paul had a radical first century view of abolishing slavery and saw everyone in the body of Christ as equal, no one above another um, in terms of worth or value. But he did say that because we are Christ, we should honor those in whom we are indebted to, or, or we might say today, those whom we work for. My application here would be more in an employee-employer environment, that we ought to respect uh, those that are in authority over us as worthy of respect. Number four, Paul also addresses here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, instructions to the rich, 1 Timothy 6 and 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And so Paul says here, do not be arrogant and do not be confident in your wealth on this earth. I like here how he says the uncertainty of wealth. Certainly we have seen that uh, throughout history. But be rich in good works. And Paul ultimately says to look towards 
uh, producing not what is temporal, but what is of eternal value, and steer yourself towards them. Okay, let's take a break. Let's take a breath. We have just a few more to go here in the book of Titus. Let's flip over to the book of Titus. Is it starting to feel like a chore list yet? No? Good. Titus chapter 2. <clears throat> the next four, next four are tied together here in Titus chapter 2. And so what I might do, what I'm going to do is probably read down through these. Uh, what Paul does here is he talks about the conduct of older men, the conduct of older women, the conduct of younger men, excuse me, younger women, and the conduct of younger men. So he hits kind of those four categories, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And so uh, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> but you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. So older men, pay attention. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just saying, if you consider yourself older, there's your marching orders. There's what your life ought to look like. There's, there's, your, there's your list. Verse 3. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So here's an instance when women are called upon in the church to teach what is good. Verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women. So older women, you are to have a role in teaching the younger women. Your behavior is also like the men, to be uh, reverent, not be slanderer, not to be drunk with wine, but to teach. And they're to teach the young women. What are they to teach the young women? They're to teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to take care of their home, or what we call a homemaker, to be kind and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. So that was the idea for younger women. And then finally in verse 6 and 7, we see this. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be uh, beyond repro reproach so that the opponent uh, will not be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. So there we've got a, a list, what I think is you know, a, 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 a worthy list of our attention and our devotion. Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, sound faith, love, and endurance. I love the idea of having that legacy. I know of men in my life that I look up to that are both with us and not with us. Uh, my father, obviously today, comes to mind, describes him to a T. He's level-headed. He's worthy of respect. He's sensible. He's sound faith, love, and endurance. He didn't get that way overnight, and he wasn't that way when he was a younger man. Uh, but he has matured in the Lord and is now worthy of all these things. He is well-respected and uh, he is a, an example to me and to many other men around him. And I pray someday that I too might be in his position. Likewise, older women, 
reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not addicted to wine, and able to teach younger women what is good. Conduct of younger women, love your husband and your children. Be self-controlled, be pure, take care of your home. Be kind and submit to your husband. Love him and support him. Be his helpmate as Eve was to Adam in the garden. And young men, be self-controlled. That's almost all Paul needs to say right there, right? I mean, if, if young men could get that in, and if, we can, if I could get that under control, we'd be good. Be self-controlled. Paul goes on here then to spill into talking about be an example of good works. Be integral. Keep dignity in your teaching. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't say you're a follower of Christ, young men, and then go and do something different. Be self-controlled. Keep a sound message, as Paul would say. Step up to the plate. Look to the older men who are worthy of respect and aspire to be like them. Don't aspire to be like uh, your peer groups. Don't aspire to be like um, those that have failed in culture and society. Don't, Don't look to celebrity culture to get your example. But look even within your own life and your own uh, maybe father figures to understand what it means to be a man, what it means to love and respect others and to have self-control, to be worthy of respect, to be sensible, to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. Those are things young men ought to aspire to as we become older men. There's a lot there to think about and unpack, and I pray that we can do that over the weeks ahead. Paul goes on then in verse 9 to talk about slaves once again, of being submissive to the master, being well-pleasing and not talking back. Don't steal and be faithful. Be a faithful worker uh, in the position that God has given you. And then in the end of Titus, uh, in chapter 3, he gives some general instructions here in verse 1. Let's read those. Remind them... To be, submiss- to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So there you have the general disposition of believers to things like those people in authority and those around us, those outsiders that we constantly interact with ought to know that we avoid fighting, that we avoid slander, that we want to be kind, that we want to be gentle to all people, that we submit to those rulers and authorities God has placed over us in our lives. And then finally in Titus 3, verse 8, we read this. This saying is trustworthy. I want to insist. I want you to insist on these things. So he's telling Titus, Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're kind of back where we started when I mentioned the idea of Jesus' second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the general disposition of those that follow Christ. Those that have been uh, a converted by the Holy Spirit, those who have been washed and regenerate, those who have been born again, know they're born again because they feel an urge within their hearts, though not always, but they feel the urge to devote themselves to good works, to love and grow in your love for your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says here, what, are, what ought we be devoted to? Not devoted to ourselves, 
not devoted to our own uh, desires necessarily or our own promotion or our own good, but for the good work, for the good of others. As Paul ends the verse here, these are good and profitable for everyone. So Paul gives us this posture towards outsiders of how we ought to relate to those who are outside of us. And so we've come to the portion of our morning, as we often do, where we've heard uh, God's truth, we've heard about God's way, and we need to evaluate our own hearts. We need to evaluate our own posture and position towards these things. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, where is God calling you to lay down your way this morning? Where is he pricking your heart? What is he, what is he uh, um, um, guiding you to do? Maybe it's guiding you to support a widow that you know about who has no other means of support. Maybe he's calling you this morning to honor the elders of a local church such as this. Maybe you could do that this morning in a couple different ways. Maybe you're called to honor your employer this week as you go back into work. Even though they mis- may mistreat you in some ways, maybe the, you may not think it's fair, or maybe you might think you're overlooked. Somehow you've been shirking your responsibilities at work for whatever reason. God's called you to honor your employer. Maybe you're called this morning to stop placing hope in the things of this world and the money of this world. Stop chasing the money and the the things of this world. Stop chasing the uh, uh, temporal things. But begin to share what you have with others and begin placing your hope in the eternal things of the Lord. Older men, maybe this morning you find yourself not of sound faith or level-headedness. God is calling you back by his word and by his spirit to a place of honor and respect. Older women, maybe you find yourselves this morning also not meeting up to these standards. Maybe you're a slanderer. Maybe you have irreverent behavior. Maybe you're addicted to too much wine. You know, in our culture and society today, that's a funny joke. For those of you who have alcohol Addiction in your family, you know it's not a joke. It's serious. And God has come this morning to rescue you from these things so that you might be an example to younger women. You might teach them the correct way. Young women, maybe you're here this morning and your love for your husband has grown cold. You think more about yourself than you do of others. God's calling you back. Maybe you're not self-controlled. Maybe you're not uh, being, putting yourself in a submissive position where you can support those that God has placed in leadership. Young men, are you an example of good works this morning? Are you self-controlled? Or are you reckless and careless and risk-seeking and self-centered? Are you worthy of respect? Are you worthy of the submission of others? Are you level-headed? Are you sensible? Maybe you're here this morning and you've not been submissive to the rulers and authorities placed over, over top of you. Ultimately, maybe you find yourself not devoted to good works. Maybe you look at this and you feel a place in your heart where you, this sounds like a list of chores when you were a kid. And God is the big, mean Father in the sky, demanding perfect obedience. 
I don't want you to hear that this morning. I want you to hear the loving voice of a heavenly father who is not giving you a list of chores, but he's calling you to be all that he has made you to be in Christ. The voice of a loving father who wants the best for you and who wants to be glorified above all things who has loved us so extravagantly in Christ, who has sent His Son to rescue us from our own way. So God is calling us to capture a vision this morning that our own way is insufficient for our own good and for His glory. He's calling us this morning to uh, reconfirm our commitment to Him and to Christ, to once again cast ourselves upon the altar, To once again say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. I can't do this alone. I desire my own way still. But Lord, I know you can change me and transform me. So that you and I can move from viewing God's way as a list of chores to celebrating the things we get to do. To celebrate when God is glorified by what we do to see great gain in us laying our lives down so that our sacrifice does not compare to the glory God receives. So I pray this morning we might gain a glorious vision for the relationships that God wants us to have, that we might gain a glorious vision for all that God has for us in Christ, and that we might come together as a church and help each other accomplish that, both here and around the world, wherever God might take us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us in Christ. You have brought us out of darkness into your glorious light. God, you have shown us the way. So God, this morning we've heard by your word and by your spirit how we ought to act. So, Lord, as we gather in this place this morning, as we hear your truth, as your spirit works in our hearts, may we clearly see, God, the ways in which we have not acted appropriately. God, may we see those so clearly by your law this morning. God, break our hearts. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, God. God, when we, when we mistreat others, when we aren't worthy of respect or honor, God, when we abuse power, when we pursue wealth, when we pursue self-gratification, when we lack self-control, God, may we detest those things. In our hearts, by your Spirit, may we hate them like you do, God. May we recognize the shame they bring on your name and the damage they do to other people. God, show us. Now, God, show us your grace. Show us the way out. God, show us your mercy once again at the cross. Show us that no matter what we've done, No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it gets, God, we know the way out. We know the way of escape is the cross. So, God, we cling to it once again this morning. 
Though we have fallen so short, God, we know your sacrifice is sufficient. We know your mercy is new every morning. We know your grace abounds to us. And so, God, we receive your grace this morning. God, with open hands, with open hearts, God, we receive your grace this morning. Transform us. Make us new. God, may we not be the same old, same old, but may we be new creations in you with new hearts and new desires and new minds attuned to your spirit and attuned to act in a way that you have called us to act. God, we give up. We surrender. And for that, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our honor and you are worthy of our lifelong commitment to you. We thank you so much for this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.